All right, well, we're still in our series on biblical justice, um, and it just dawns on me that as we b- jump into this this morning, there, there's a reality that sometimes we forget why we're doing what we're doing. We live in a day and age, and it, this came out in our com- my conver- not my, our conversation in my community group, in the community group that I'm a part of, uh, last Wednesday night, that in some way, everything we're wrestling with, everything, we're, we're all wanting justice, right? There's ways in which this is working out in a number of different circumstances. Most of, the, most of the strife and struggle that we feel in the world today, there's a cry for justice, a desire for justice. And so as God's people, we need to understand what it is to live and do justice, to be justice people. And so that's what we've been working on. So so we started a few weeks ago. We laid out some stuff. I'm going to rush through just a review to, to remind us where we've been, set us up for today, and then, and then we'll jump in. But we're going to be in Romans. We're going to be again in Romans chapter 1. So go ahead and flip there in your Bible as I'm walking through this review. You'll, you'll be ready to follow along as we get there. And I would just encourage we're going to, there's going to be kind of a survey of Romans. So you're going to want your Bible open and in front of you just so that you can kind of keep up and follow along. But biblical justice. So this is what we've been setting out. Biblical justice will always recognize God is God. We are not. Keeps him where he belongs and where we belong. It will, biblical justice will always recognize the equality of all people from all places as image bearers of God. We are all created in his image. Biblical justice will always declare the sinfulness of sin, its offense against God, and harm against humanity. We will never, in, a just, in biblical justice, we can never, will never be able to affirm anyone in sin. Biblical justice will always relieve as able the burden of the persecuted and hold accountable the persecutor. Biblical justice will always rely on God's steadfast love and faithfulness to bring relief. We just sang a song, not yet, yet not I, but through, but Christ through, whatever the name of that, what's the name of that song? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Thank you. It seems weird as I'm saying it. So the reality is we don't have anything in and of ourselves intrinsic to our being apart from the work of God in us to offer. We've had to receive his grace. We've had to receive his mercy. We've had to receive his love. We've had to, had to be a, a recipient of his constant, consistent faithfulness that we can then rely on it to extend it to others. Biblical justice, and we added this this last week, last Sunday during our service sermon, biblical justice will always prioritize the truth of God's word to equip God's people. All truth is necessary in the pursuit of justice, but only the scripture, only God's word has been given the position in which it's been stated with authority that it will equip God's people for every good work, that it will train us or discipline us in righteousness. And, and if you remember that word righteousness is from the same word group, it's simply speaking of living justly, this ethical right way of living, living in right relationship to God and man. Two facets of biblical justice that we've walked through or worked through over this series is rectifying justice. That's the correcting justice. It's righting wrongs, making right judgments and things like that. Primary justice is the justice that if it was prevalent, if we all lived this way, would render rectifying justice unnecessary because everybody would be, justice would always be happening. And we recognized our personal and individual responsibility and our failures in justice. In fact, we saw that in Romans chapters 1 through 3 where Paul lays out clearly, everyone is at fault. In all these cries for justice, in all these demands for justice, you can look around and you can identify that everyone who is calling out for justice 
Every one of us that's calling out for justice have in some way suffered injustice at the hands of someone, but we've also caused or treated others unjustly. And then finally, in the review, we, we, we have covered systemic injustice, and that's a system. It's really a symptom. Let me say it like this, a symptom of uh, personal and individual responsibility. When we fail to live justly, and because we're innately sinful people, we're innately unjust people just by nature, that's what all of us are, we can't help but build unjust systems. It just happens. It's the reality of the world we live in. And we looked at pornography and abortion, and, and there's a number of others we can list out. Um, I've, I've, I've mentioned the organization Black, Live, Black Lives Matter a number of times. In all the conversations about systemic racism, I'm not suggesting there's not ways in which it's happening from the perspective they're suggesting, but the organization's Black Lives Matter itself is an unjust system seeking to deal with injustice unjustly. It's just the reality. And we can walk through that. We talked about it a little bit on our Q&A. Uh, all these ways. There's systemic injustice exists, and it's a, a real thing that has to be dealt with. Uh, as a result of all this, we have to know what we're doing. We have to understand what biblical justice is and, and seek to walk through it in a way that's honorable before God, that is primary righteousness, that is us doing justice justly. Today, we're going to look at the doctrine of justification and its connection to doing justice. The truth is, if we have been justified by faith, which is the doctrine that we'll live just lives by faith because God sanctifies everyone he justifies. In fact, that's the main, the main point of the sermon, and I don't typically do this before we jump into the verses, but but we're going to be walking through so many. I just want to set it out. This is, this is where we're headed. This is the main point. Everyone who God justifies by faith will live just lives by faith because God sanctifies everyone he justifies. Now, several years back at a Gospel Coalition conference, Tim Keller <clears throat> stood up, gave his sermon, gave his talk, and he opened it this way. He says, those who are all about justification by faith alone are usually, note, the word usually, he's not saying always, but usually, are usually not about justice. And those who are all about justice usually are not, all about, are, are not about justification by faith alone. I think that is a big mistake, he says. Now, <clears throat> he, he goes on to, he, he, he notices this pattern. He, he's, he's looking at the landscape of the church and he's noticing this pattern that there's a segment of the church that doesn't want us to diminish or minimize in any way the doctrine of justification by faith. And I'm in agreement. I don't want to minimize that. You'll see why in just a minute as we work through it. We don't want to dismiss that. We don't want to ignore that. While, while there's another segment of the church that has minimized essential doctrines of the church like this, like justification by faith alone, in order to prioritize a social concern. And so out of that, we've seen all kinds of social gospels or false gospels begin to be presented. And, and so it is concerning. There's a real legitimate concern. But his point, not just in the sermon, but also in a book. He actually wrote a whole book. In fact, I've got it here. Uh, it's called Generous Justice. If you want to borrow it, I would commend it to you. It's a balanced, well-written view of what biblical justice is about and, and, and how justification and justice go together. I would encourage you to, to take a look at it. You can borrow my copy if you'd like. In fact, in the, in the talk, he says, don't go buy a book, borrow a friend's, and so I'm just following his advice. You're welcome to borrow mine. I want it back, uh, but you, you are welcome to borrow it. Anyway, the point he makes is it, it, that his concern is 
that we're building this, this, these, tens- these tensions are developing because we're separating two things that actually belong together. Justification and the doing of justice. Now, this wasn't just his point back in 2010 when he wrote the book or 2011 when he gave the talk. He has maintained this view under, um, well, whether, uh, under a lot of scrutiny and at the cost of a lot of friendships and people, a lot of name-calling, if you will. So, so today, if you hear much about Tim Keller from one side of this conversation, he's a Marxist, he's a heretic, he's not worth listening to, he's untrustworthy, all these things. But he maintains this, and he maintains this as a biblical position. And, he, and he, 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 even just back in 2017, just five short years ago, in another talk, he contends further. He says, I'm here to say justification and justice are joined at the hip. They're almost a seamless cloth. Justice people who are walking away from that old traditional gospel are walking away from an enormous resource for doing justice. I would argue the only resource for ultimately accomplishing justice in the world. But justification people who don't realize that the two things go together just need to go back to the Scripture. Justification by faith leads to justice. Justice leads to more people getting justified by faith. Now, you may not like Tim Keller. You may agree with the tribe of Christians that have labeled him all these things, heretic, untrustworthy, Marxist, all, all that stuff. You, that may be where you're at. On the other hand, you may be sitting in this room, and we have people on both sides of this camp. You may be sitting in this, in this room thinking, well, wait a minute, outside the Bible, Tim Keller is the most influential theological person or theological influence I've ever had. And I personally, personally, I don't agree with everything he has to say. I, w- I would nuance some of his statements. I would look at them a little bit differently. But here, in these two statements, I think he's right on. In, in both instances, he highlights that the weakness of the position being held is that each position is pitting certain verses against other verses. And they're denying or ignoring or minimizing one set of Scripture in favor of another set of Scripture. When we know from our study last week that we need all Scripture to train us in righteousness. That we need the whole counsel of God's will. That we can't ignore one for the other. At every point, at every point, we need to to be able to be trained in righteousness. We need God's word. And when we begin to do what he is beginning to see happen, well... We lose the ability to really live just lives in an unjust world. Because how do we get trained for justice or living righteously or living justly? God's word. So so we need it all. But but I don't want you to just take my word for this and, 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 and what is happening here. I don't want you to just take Tim Keller's word for it. I want you to see it. In the scripture. So we're going to walk through Romans, through several passages in Romans, and you're going to see that the point that, we, that I laid out at the very beginning, that everyone who God justifies by faith will live just lives by faith because God sanctifies everyone he justifies. That is biblical. That's rooted in the scripture. I'm not just making it up. Tim Keller's not just making it up. These two things are joined at the hip. We're going to start looking. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. So let me do this. We're going to read a lot of passages. Let me just pray that God would be with us, that he will guide us, that he lead us into truth by the power of his spirit, and that today we will, we will hear from him. So, Father, we ask just that, that you would work through your word 
that you would transform, that you would renew our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12. That you would circumcise our hearts. That our lives would be transformed and our pursuit of living righteously, of living justly, would be the result of your work. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name and for your fame. Amen. Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news, the message of God's saving work. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so here we have what many scholars, what many theologians, every commentator that I looked at and read from, see as a thesis statement for the book of Romans that he is going to begin to defend and expound on, explain further as he works his way through this letter. I think you'll see that actually happen as we walk through some of these passages. That, that Paul is, is setting it up. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Because in it, what do we find? I'm not ashamed of it. What do we find that he's going to explain further? First, the thing we find is the righteousness of God revealed. Well, well what is that? What is the righteousness of God? There's a, there's a way in which we can look at the word righteousness, the, the, especially that phrase, the righteousness of God, and we can look at it several different ways, and it has been looked at several different ways. There's a, several different, I'm going to give you the three main ones that I came across in my study. First, as we talk about the righteousness of God, we might be referring to God's just nature. So you remember, the word righteous is, is from that word group. That's, it, it's just as easily translated justice, injustice, unjust, just, all, all these things. It, it, the righteousness of God may be referring to God's just nature. That God's righteousness, that his just nature, his sinless perfection, his, his all, always doing everything right, never doing anything wrong, never doing anything unjust, never working any type of injustice, that could be the nature that's on display in the gospel. Second, it could be God's just action of salvation. So think about this. Back in Micah 6, 1 through 8, when we studied, there was a command. God commanded his people, do justice. And we were able to see through the whole teaching of Micah that there was an expectation that they took care of people who were being oppressed, taken advantage of, widows and orphans, right? Like there's a way in which Micah was, was connecting that to the ways he was showing them what they should have done and confronting them on the things they, they were actually doing, convicting them, of, con, con, uh, I don't know the right word I want to use, confronting them on the, th- on, the, on the sin and then showing them what they should have. You should have done justice. This is what God expects. Well, this doing of justice could be, could be what Paul is saying is on display in the gospel. See, God came to save us. He came to liberate us from our sin. He came to free us from our oppression. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to work and do justice on our behalf. And there's a number of authors, a number of conservative theologians that, that are moving to the place where they believe this is actually what he is talking about because God's gospel is revealing God's justice. A third one that, that could be on display here or being mentioned here is that this is God's declaration of our just standing. So we are being called just. We are being declared innocent. We are being declared as if we've never sinned. 
based on the gospel. That's another, another view. And here's the struggle. And this is the reason why it's so debated and nobody can come to any consensus. Because all three of these are demonstrated in the book of Romans. And so I really appreciate John Stott's word and, and view on this as he's dealing with this. He, he says this. He writes this in his commentary. The righteousness of God can be thought of as a divine attribute. Our God is a righteous God. Or activity, he comes to our rescue. Or achievement, he bestows on us a righteous status. All three are true and have been held by different scholars, sometimes in relation to each other. For myself, I have not been able to see why we have to choose and why all three should not be combined. Think about how we think, like we're, we, we tend to pretend that we're very binary in thought. That to believe this means I can't possibly think this. To hold this view can't possibly be, we, we, we tr- tend to treat one another that way. And so this whole, this whole season of, of COVID and race conversations and political views, uh, if you voted for Trump, you must be racist, right? Like that's how we, that's, that's how we act. And and we're like, no, we, we can hold more complex, more nuanced thought than that. And why can we not see that, potentially see, that when Paul's writing that the righteousness of God is revealed, that his intention is to show us how this righteousness, this just nature, this just action, and this declaration of our just standing, he's going to show us every bit of it through the, through the whole book. So why can't that be what he's doing? That's John Stott's argument, and I appreciate it. Why are we trying to put Paul in a place where he's not saying what he might actually be saying? I just think we got to be careful. I think Stott's right, and I think we should see all of these, all of these evident because we're going to see them demonstrated in the verses that, that come. Next we see revealed is it from faith for faith. It's from faith. Now, there, again, there's lots of opinions. In fact, there's lists. Like I found one commentator that had like 20 different positions that were being described. The seeming common ground between all of them was that we enter by faith and we endure in faith. It's, it's the common ground seemed to be that, the, that faith is primary, that faith is necessary, that faith has a proper and right place in response to the gospel, in the gospel work of God. And then second, that leads to that leads to his quotation from the book of Habakkuk, where, where he quotes, uh, the just shall live by faith. That's the third thing he points out here being revealed. The righteous shall live by faith. Again, that word is just as easily translated, the just shall live by faith. In fact, there's some translations that do. But here's the question of debate. Here the question of debate is what? Paul means when he says that. And there's a couple of options offered. Is Paul saying that by faith, for faith, the righteous shall live by faith, is he saying that a person is declared righteous as a result of placing their faith in the gospel and then living as a result of that faith? Is he saying that we enter in by faith and and focus on that entry point? Or is he saying... We live by faith, meaning that faith informs all of our life, not just the entry into, but all of our life. Well, I think if you think back on what I just said, we enter it by and endure it in faith. I think it's both. And in fact, again, John Stott, being the mediating voice here, seems to, seems to, in my mind, 
uh, be helpful again when he writes, Are not both true? Righteousness and life are both by faith. Those who are righteous by faith also live by faith. Having begun in faith, they continue in the same path. We enter by faith and we endure in faith. This is the Christian life. So again, why are we arguing over what he might be saying the exact same thing? Going back to the main point of the sermon, everyone who God justifies by faith will live just lives by faith because God sanctifies everyone he justifies. You can begin to see the makings of that statement in those verses, but we're going to see it a little more specifically. Fast forward to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now, on the way there, let me just explain to you what happens in the middle here. Paul demonstrates that we are all sinners, every last one of us. We have all sinned. In fact, he's going to say it. We have all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. He, he, he points at the, at, the, at the Gentile person who's never known Christ. He points at the, the moral person who pretends to, to be living a moral life. And he points at the Jewish person. He comes to the place in Romans at the beginning of Romans chapter 3 where he demonstrates this is all of us. None is righteous. No, not one. None is just. No, not one. None of us do the justice we've been called to do. And then he comes to verse 21. And that's where we're going to pick up. But now. So there was no righteousness found in mankind. But now. The righteousness of God. That same phrase. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God. Excuse me. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you can hear, wait a minute, those are key words. He's connecting back to his thesis statement from chapter 1. There's this righteousness of God that's available to us through faith. Not the law. The law and the prophets, they point to it. They show it. They reveal it. They bear witness to it. But this righteousness from God is through faith. In Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which just means a a satisfactory sacrifice or a payment, a, a satisfactory payment, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Here's, here's the, the point I want to build out of this. There's so much we could look at. We could sit and we could just study this. So many things it says. Well, I'm going to hit on a few that are just in passing. But, but justification is by faith alone. Anyone who denies that is missing the gospel. Justification is by faith alone. This passage states it clearly. There's one other place in the scripture that I know states it that clearly. Verse 28, if this, if this verse doesn't prove it for you, justification is by faith. Faith alone, apart from the works of the law. In his systematic, let me just give you a definition. In his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem defines justification this way. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven 
and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. I want you to notice that it's not just, hey, he forgave your sins, but he actually imputed or put Christ's righteousness on you. So you're not just, you're not just forgiven of sin, you're actually considered righteous, you're considered just based on Christ's work, and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is a positional standing. This is a legal declaration. It is as if we've gone into the courtroom and we know we're guilty and we're expecting that gavel to fall and we're to hear the words, you are guilty as charged. And when the gavel falls, he says, you are guilty innocent. You're not just pardoned because Christ's righteousness is counted as yours. You were never counted as sinful in that sense. And you, you are not just, you, you're forgiven, yes, but you are counted as if you have always been just, as if you have always been righteous. There's nothing to hold against you because Christ took it so that you could have what he had earned. And, and we see in this place, we see this, this same thing that he began to teach being expressed in this passage. Faith, the faith that is so central, from faith for faith, the faith that is so essential is on display here. And it's, that's the way we enter into and receive this justification. But it can't be just any faith. We all believe all kind of things, right? It's a certain, it's a, it's a right faith in the right one. Faith depends on Jesus' just action. And so here, I'm gonna, I just want you to see this. It, when, we looked, when we looked at 117, I talked about that, that this could be God's righteous nature, his just nature on display, or it could be his just action where he's doing justice on our behalf. He's coming to liberate us. He's coming to free the oppressed. He's coming to take care of us. Look at what it says. <clears throat> For all have sinned and are justified by his grace, through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus, whom God, God did this. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God did this work on our behalf. This is his just action. This is his doing of justice on behalf of people who are all sinners who are all stuck in this place where we fall short in every way. We never measure up. If you go back further into Romans chapter 3, or go back earlier in chapter 3, not only no one's righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us. This is where we live. This is the people we live with. But God, comes in and he does this just work. He does this justice work on our behalf and he does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And this is our faith. Faith depends on Jesus' just action as serving as a propitiation for us. He died in our place and for our sins. Faith depends on God's just nature. Now, if we just follow that reasoning along, right? So this was to show, pick it up in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, his justice, at the present time so that he might be just and justifier. So that he might remain righteous 
and declare other people righteous. So, so this is the illustration that's often given. If, an, if a criminal walks into to, to court and the judge says, not guilty, but everybody knows he's guilty, that's not a just judge. In fact, that's the judge we seek to get rid of, right? Like that's no, well, only the criminals want that judge. But God demonstrates his just nature. He demonstrates his righteousness, his always doing right, never doing injustice and doing anything unjust. He demonstrates his just nature in justifying us by by making payment through his son, through the gospel. And our faith depends on Jesus' just action, but it also depends on God's just nature. If God's not just, the gospel's not good. You get that. It's necessary. Both of these aspects are necessary. Faith doesn't just rely on God, God's just nature and Jesus' just action. It also receives what, what our works can't accomplish. So we must be declared righteous because we can't earn it. We can't do it. We're all sinners. We we all fall short. I just read the verses. But in this passage, we see that he declares us righteous. We are justified by faith, which means that God thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And legally, with a legal action, with a real imputed action, with a real way in which he's declaring something to be true, he says you and I in Christ are innocent. Our sins have been washed white as snow. They have been separated from us as far as the east is from the west. This is what Paul's getting at, right? So all of these things, these three ideas that we are struggling to try to piece together, that people are wanting to segment out and say, this is what Paul means, are are being demonstrated in the very passage that speaks so clearly about justification being by faith alone and not by works. But it's right. It's right. We need, we need desperately to protect the church with this doctrine. It's the heart of the Protestant. It was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther argued for the importance of this doctrine by saying this is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flown have flowed it alone begets nourishes builds preserves and defends the church of God and without it the church of God cannot exist for an hour if this doctrine is that important, that vital, that essential you can understand why the prophetic voices are standing on the side looking at these people who are who are proclaiming these things about justice and doing justice in the world, and you can understand why. We can't let go of this doctrine. It's vital to the church. These people are concerning me because they don't seem to be paying attention to this doctrine. We need to protect this doctrine. Calvin called it the the main hinge on which religion turns. Without knowing justification by faith, without having the doctrine of justification by faith, there is no true or good religion. You could actually follow that out in James' thinking in his book. We won't go there now. But this, So yes, let's defend it. Let's guard ourselves. Let's guard our brothers and sisters. Let's prophetically proclaim. This is essential. We can't let it go. It's necessary. It's an essential part of the whole process that we must be justified, not by our works, 
but by our faith. The problem is that if that's all we ever teach, we don't need most of the rest of the New Testament. In fact, we've only surveyed three chapters of the book of Romans. So should we just stop? Well, we got justification by faith, so, so let's just quit. So this is the problem. This is where Tim Keller calls out. Here's, here's the issue is that we focus so heavy there that we tend to minimize other doctrines. We must be careful. We must hear the whole counsel. So let's fast forward again. Let's see what, where Paul leads. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to demonstrate what it looks like to be justified by faith. And he's going to show that Abraham, like us, was justified not by what he did, but by his faith. He's going to demonstrate what this justification brings, peace with God, or an ability to rejoice in suffering, a, recipient or a reception of God's wonderful and glorious grace. And it's at the point that he begins to deal with our justification by faith as a, as a reception of or a receiving of God's glorious grace that he asks a question. In chapter 6, it opens with this. What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? By no means, these famous by no means statements, these emphatic, like he can't say no stronger. Like the only way, no, you know, like I think that maybe it's a strong, no, absolutely not. Well, jump down to verse 15 and you'll see, you'll see how this works out. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. I love that the ESV puts an explanation point. I, I don't know how to say it stronger. I mean, I guess I could shout it at you, but absolutely not. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Again, that word could be just as easily translated justice, justness, uh, or just. But thanks be to God. That you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were one, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And here the point that I'd like you to see and like you to recognize is that the justified are sanctified. There's not a path or an off-ramp on which we can climb off the letter of Romans to really understand what he's teaching. This is a whole line of thinking that he's developing so that he can get to the end in Romans chapter 12 and really begin to give a lot of ethical instruction. The idea here is that those who have been justified are going to be sanctified. In the, in the previous passage... In Romans chapter 3 that we studied, he's using the term righteous as a legal term, as, as, as a way in which he's saying you've been pronounced just. But as you look at it and see it in this passage, he's laying it next to words like lawless and, and giving yourself to, to good works and things like that. And, and he's using it now in a more ethical way in which it really does and could just as easily be translated, giving yourself and committing your members to acts of justice. Now, again, I just want to qualify this. We're doing this whole study to delineate between what the world calls justice and what the Bible teaches as justice. There is a distinction. There's a massive difference. 
But just because somebody starts talking about justice doesn't immediately make them a wackadoo that doesn't have any place in the church. These go together. The just are sanctified. In his systematic theology, again, I'm going to point you to Wayne Grudem. He, he does a really good job of presenting these definitions on a, on a street level in a concise way. He says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, depending on who you read and study from, some people would say sanctification is still just a work of God and all we're ever doing is responding. Some people highlight the, the ways in which we participate. I appreciate this definition and I think we see both the work of God and the work of man in this passage demonstrating that, that, that work of and leading to sanctification. First, let's look at God's work. God frees us from sin. Look at verse 17 in chapter 6 where he says, but thanks be to God. So, so we're about to thank God for some powerful work that he does, some reality that he's created. That you were freed from sin. He gets the credit for it. He gets the gratitude. He gets all the praise for it. Thanks be to God that you've been set free from sin, that, that, that you are no longer bound up in sin. That you, who were once slaves, have become obedient from the heart to the standard. Wait a minute, so it sounds like I became obedient. But look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin. So it's a passive statement. That's something that's been done to you, not something that you did yourself. We're only able to become obedient. We're only able to begin to obey God's commands because he first set us free. This is God's work. God frees us from sin. This is part of the sanctification process. It begins at the moment of conversion and regeneration. Other doctrines we don't have time to go into today, but still part of the gospel. At the moment that we're converted, at the moment that we're justified, we enter into a process of sanctification in which, by God's work and our response... God is making us more free of sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So God frees us from sin in this passage. We see his work. In, in addition, we live just, just lives. We live justly, righteously. That's the call. That's the expectation. That's the command. Look at it in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now pre present your members, that's your body, your, your, your doings, your physical doings. Present yourself as slaves to righteousness, to doing justice, to living justly. It is our responsibility, having been freed by God from sin, to no longer sin. This leads to sanctification. You see this process begin. This, this working of God. He frees us from sin. He enables us to live uh, in such a way that we don't give ourselves to sin anymore, and that makes us more holy. That's what the word sanctification really means, is, is being made holy and progressively so. So we're justified apart from works, but having been justified by faith, we're responsible to live and do good works. Justification by faith gives, gives way to sanctification in our life of faith. We start with faith being justified, and we endure in faith being sanctified. John Calvin, in his Institutes, recognized clearly the connection between these two. And he writes this. This is a long quote. It's on the screen behind me. Long quote. Just, just hang on. By faith, we grasp Christ's righteousness, by which alone we are reconciled to God. Yet, 
You could not grasp this without at the same time grasping sanctification also. For he is Christ, for Christ is given unto us for righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, Christ justifies no one whom he does not at the same time sanctify. These benefits are joined together by an everlasting and indissoluble bond, so that those whom he illumines by his wisdom he redeems. Those whom he redeems he justifies. Those whom he justifies he sanctifies. This is the point that that, that I've been seeking to show. The, The Bible demonstrates that both justification by faith and the life of justice as a result of our justification by faith are necessary and essential doctrines. And I might not be able to argue against Luther and Calvin that justification by faith is the essential doctrine, that if we lose that doctrine, then we've lost the church. I may not be able to elevate that the life of justice, if we lose that doctrine, we lose the church. We may not lose the church, but how will we know who and where the church is? If we lose the doctrine of a life of justice that extends and is an expression of our justification of faith, how is the church then any different than any other social club? How is membership in the church any different if justification by faith is is, is there, but we have no life? How, How is it any different? Anyone can come and say, I've been justified by faith. The evidence of that justification is the just life produced by the sanctifying work of God as his people live in response. And you can see this. You can see this process even further fully filled out across this letter. Romans 8, 29 through 30. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Let me just read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. He is conforming you to the image of Jesus. He is making you look and live and act like Jesus. The image that was marred in our fall in sin is being restored so that we can be and do the things he's called us to in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has a whole pathway that he has planned out. We've been predestined not only to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, sanctified. We've been predestined for justification. We've been predestined for glorification. This chain of salvation demonstrates that all these doctrines are part of God's work in and through the gospel. So do God's people receive justification by faith? Do they enter into life by faith or do they live every day by faith? Both. Both are true. Look at chapters 12 through 15. I don't have a lot of time to get through them, but and we're not even going to try just to (laughs) relieve you. (laughs) We're not going to run through three chapters real fast. But if you will take time this week, let me just wet your whistle with this. Ethical teaching upon ethical teaching. Paul, he doesn't give up doctrinal perspectives. He doesn't walk away from expressing doctrine within them. But every verse is filled with the responsibility of God's justified people to live just lives, to be a just society on this blue ball or flat earth, whichever one you prefer. That's not my purview. You can argue about that amongst yourselves. But, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have even gone there. But I did. It's too late. 
further. What we've worked through today isn't just the book of Romans. It's not just Paul. Now, I can go to, I can go to Ephesians. I can show you Paul, he, how he demonstrates the gospel. And then the response of the gospel is us to live these just lives as a response of the gospel. First half is all what God's done. Second half is all what we're supposed to do because what God's done. Right? But it's not just Paul. Peter John, when we walked through the book of 1 John, did, did we not see over and over that if God has loved us, then we will naturally love others. If God has done a work in us, that work will become evident in others. In fact, he goes so far as to say that if it's not, then God, so, so 1 John 3, 16 through 18, this is how we know what, God, what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if you see your brother in need with physical needs... Not a bunch of spiritual stuff that we like to talk about and feel comfortable about because, hey, we can just do this in discussion. It doesn't cost us much physically. If you see your brother in need and have the ability to meet that need but don't do it, how can the love of God be in you? That's his question. There's an ethical expectation. There's a just way to live as a result of the justice we have been given. There's a just way to live because of the justification we have received by faith. And that life of justice is as much motivated by our faith as anything else we do. Everyone who God justifies by faith will live just lives by faith because God sanctifies everyone he justifies. And so why does this matter? Why, why, why bother with this long, maybe too fast, maybe too complex for some people? Why, why does it matter? Because we live in a world that takes seriously conversations about justice right now. We need to understand what it is to do justice and who can actually do justice. If we're going to understand biblical justice, we've got to figure, we, we gotta understand, we've got to see how the scripture speaks to all of it. It's not a one or the other, it's a both and. So Christian, we need to take this seriously. We need to see how, how justification and justice, as Keller says, are joined at the hip. Because by nature, uh, by, by, by nature of our justification, we've been made responsible to do justice. Now again, I qualify. I'm not talking about the social justice the world calls out. I'm talking about the biblical justice that God calls his people to do. We're going to actually begin to deal with that more specifically in practice next week, two weeks. Because by our nature of justification, we have been made responsible to do justice, so we need to know what we've been called to do. But because it's only by being justified by faith, this matters because it's only by being justified by faith that justice can be done. So what does that mean for a world that's crying for justice that has rejected God? What does that mean for them? The justice they long for is not the justice they want. Or, or the justice they receive is not the justice they long for. Without justification by faith, there, there is going to be no justice being done among them until God's just wrath brings judgment and condemnation. And because that's the world we live in, and they're out there calling for justice, we need to see this not as an opportunity 
to, to divide in the church and debate over doing justice or not doing justice or justification by faith and all these things. It's an opportunity for us to meet the world right where they are seeking answers and tell them about the God who justifies by faith and provides power to live just by faith. And yet here we are. Not us so much, but generally speaking, the American church. Divided and pitting scripture against scripture and beginning to pit Christian against Christian. And denying the, the fact that these things all work together. In our church, as your pastor, one of them, I long for our people to not be caught up in this mess. But to be a people who really believe and hold strongly to the doctrines of grace. Of the, the five solas of the Reformation, if you will, one of them being justification by faith alone. And then living just, living righteously, doing justice in the name of that doctrine. And let all the other talking heads out there argue. Let all the other debaters out there debate. But we get to the work that God has given us to do. And we go show a world what it looks like to be a just people who are justified by faith. And we tell them about the God who sent his son to provide justice that justifies by faith. And gives them the ability to live justly before him. I think if we'd get busy about doing that, all the other things would seem fall away. Seem a little less important. Cause a little bit less anxiety and fear. Because we'd be so fixated in seeing the work of God and the glory of God being revealed in the mission of God. That's just an opinion, another sermon for another day. If you're here and you've never been justified by faith, if, you believe, if, you have, if you've been religious but you've now just given up on justification by faith and you're living in this whole justice mentality, let me point you back to the scripture. Justification is by faith alone. Your desire for justice is ingrained in you, non-Christian. It's natural to all of us. It's part of who we are the world we live in, just being image bearers of God, we long for that justice. But there's only one way you're going to find it. There's only one way you're going to enjoy it. There's only one way you're going to be able to live in it. And that's be justified first by faith so that you can then begin to live just by faith. So let me encourage you. Lady, you're deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Trust in him and him alone. And step in to this innocent, sinless declaration. You belong. And begin to live just. Let's pray.